Hello and welcome to I Love Edmonton Real Estate. Today I have as guests Simon and Elizabeth Schellenberg. Simon and Elizabeth are a real estate couple. They're both real estate agents working here in Edmonton and they've got a great business going on. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jason. Glad to be here. Okay, excellent. So, Elizabeth, you were the first of the two of you to get into real estate. Tell me a little bit about that and how you got involved. Okay. Well, we first got started because we both purchased houses that have basement suites before we were married. And then when we got married, Simon moved into the basement suite of my house with me. And then people were asking us, well, are you going to sell your other house? And we're like, no, we're going to keep it. And then people were like, you're going to have two houses? And we're like, yeah, we're just going to give us a try. And then it went really well. And then we purchased some more properties and and we really liked it. And we found that that's where our passion really was. And so we decided, well, I decided first to quit my old job. And then I wanted to be in real estate full time. And one way I thought I could do that was to be a real estate agent. So that's how I started. Okay. So you didn't grow up saying, hey, I want to be a real estate agent. No, not at all. So what, what was your previous life? I was a researcher at, at the university. Oh, okay. So from research to real estate, that's quite a change. Yeah, but it, it, you still actually can use quite a few of the skills. How so? Well, research skills can be applicable anywhere, I find. And I think it helps me have a better grasp on numbers and stuff like that. Okay, great. So when you guys started, you each owned a property and each property had a basement suite. And then you got married, moved in together. So you're living in one suite. And then technically you have three rental units. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. When I started out, the reason I jumped straight into a house with a basement suite is because I was coming out of university. My financial situation was so tight and I knew that the only way I could buy a house and still have opportunity for upward mobility in my life was to get something that had some income in and of itself. And so that's how I jumped into real estate investing. And as Elizabeth said, she was basically doing the same thing at the same time. And so we decided to keep one property. And as soon as we were married, boom, all of a sudden we had three rental units right out of the gates. And that's been sort of our philosophy. We've done things in a little different way afterwards, but that's sort of been a rental or an investment philosophy that we've maintained since then. Did you each buy a house before you knew each other? We were... We knew each other. We actually, we joined an investors group before we got married. We did that together. And then we each had purchased our own investment properties and I was living in mine. Elizabeth's was strictly for rental at the time. And then we were doing this while we knew each other, but before we were married. And then once we were married, that's when we moved in together and automatically it sort of grew both of our portfolios at the same time. We doubled our portfolio. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So Simon, tell us how you got into real estate as an agent. As an agent, yes. Like you said, I explained my startup as an investor, but as an agent, I was working at a company that's headquartered here in the city and as I was actually negotiating their transportation contracts. And as much as I appreciated that job, I really wanted to move into something where real estate was a full-time thing for me because I had a passion for it. And I was always, even at work, I'd be sneaking in time to read up on different articles or thinking of ways I could expand my portfolio. I had a real passion for real estate and investing. And also I wanted to be an entrepreneur as well. And 
over the years of our investing, we always found ourselves in conversations where we were trying to tell other people the benefits and help them along the way. And I thought, you know what, this is a perfect way to transition and pull all those things together at once where I have the ability to be in real estate full time. I'm an entrepreneur and I'm able to help people make basically the biggest transaction of their life. And to do all those things at once is sort of the ideal situation for me. And so that's how I made the jump from basically my corporate job to jumping in as a real estate agent. Right. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Now, what people should know is that when you did this, you guys had a brand new son who had arrived on the scene. And so going from, you know, secure salary position to, mm -hmm. you know, jumping in 100% commission was obviously a brave step. It's one I'm familiar with. I did the same thing. So yes. I commend mm -hmm. you on taking the plunge. Tell me, what is it like for the two of you having a young son and, you know, you're both self-employed looking after your clients? How do you deal with the demands and the conflicting schedules? And well, it takes a lot of communication. You have to discuss a lot of, we talk about our schedule pretty much every day, all day. We're constantly saying, where are you going to be at this time? Where am I going to be at this time? And who's going to make sure, because our child doesn't go into uh, childcare. He stays with us all the time. Mm -hmm. So someone always needs to be with him. And then we try to figure out ways that it, it was easier to take him with us when he was little. It was easy for him to come to a meeting or a home inspection because he could sit or be carried for three hours. But now that he walks, it's a lot more difficult. So we like to bring him to things like, say, I'm dropping off a gift basket to someone. They'll, they like to see. They're totally fine with the baby coming along to that and they, they enjoy it. We'll bring him if it's not disrupting the client. But yeah, for the most part, a lot of communication, a lot of discussing our calendars and just always starting the morning talking about, okay, what are you doing today? And then regrouping, constant communication. I think that's... Mm -hmm. We'll see how we do it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when my son was a baby, I would pack him up and bring him to meet uh, clients to do mortgage applications. And what was interesting was that he was awesome for breaking the ice with new clients. Yes. And I'm sure Sam is the same way. People really do like him and he likes people. I think it takes people's guards down. People like babies in general, I find. And he's very easy to be around. And so I think that helps too. Yeah. I think usually we try to gauge sort of the client before we do this. And also it depends on what we're doing. If we're going to go see 10 houses with somebody, obviously that's not really a baby appropriate activity. But one thing I actually love taking him when I'm going to give a key release or if I'm dropping off to drop off a thank you gift, I think that actually adds a special touch, especially for people that have families. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's something that can be an icebreaker as well. And so if I talk to someone on the phone, I know they're a family person, I might say, hey, do you mind if I bring my son along? He's one years old and he's an excellent junior realtor. And so I said, do you mind if I bring him along? And usually people are actually pretty excited about it. So yeah. it's worked out quite well. That's awesome. I used to call Zenin my vice president of breaking the ice. <laughs> yeah. So, Okay. So Elizabeth, have you received any awards or uh, recognition in the industry? Yeah, I have received a few awards. In my first year, which was 2014, like first full year of being a realtor, View Weekly, which is just a paper here in Edmonton, they do like a reader's choice award kind of thing. And so with that, I won second runner up for best realtor in Edmonton. So that was fun. That was just with votes from readers. Yeah, that was fun. Oh, I got awesome. to be in the paper and stuff like that. Yeah. But more importantly, we we're part of the Real Estate Investment Network. Like we said, that's where we met you, Jason. So in 2014, I was named top realtor for Alberta North. So that was a really big accomplishment. And I was really proud of that. And that came from client testimonials. So other RAIN members that had used me as a realtor, they nominated me. So that was really a great honor. Okay. So obviously, you know, given your 
personal backgrounds with real estate, I would imagine that one of the niches that the two of you focus on are investor clients. Is that the case? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say that's the case. It probably works out to almost a 50-50 balance in terms of home buyers and people that have an investment purpose in their purchase. So, but 50%, to be a realtor and have 50% of your clientele working on investments is most definitely a specialization. And for us, instead of choosing a geographic, you know, a neighborhood or a specific community to work in, we've decided to focus on that because that's some knowledge and expertise that we can instantly bring to the deal because we have properties. We've been expanding our portfolio basically since we started. So we specialize in investments. We're still residential realtors, but we specialize in investments. And if you really want to get down to something that we're excellent at, it's basement suites because that's what we own. And we've gone through legalization process. We've had some some properties that we've owned for quite a few years now. So we're quite experienced in that area. And that's a big benefit that we bring to the table for our clients. Okay. And we're really familiar with building code, people from the city, the permitting process. And I find that that could be really scary for people to navigate by themselves. So we can tell them, you know, we've directly done this. You can directly call this person from the city. This is a person I talk to. And I think that's a real big value add to clients. So tell me one of the best experiences that you've had as real estate agents. I'm looking for a happy story as to you know, how you save the day for someone. (laughs) Well, this is not a specific story, but just a couple summers ago, I had just in a few short months, I had five different clients, couples, where they were expecting a baby. (laughs) And I really liked that because I felt like I was a part of a really important journey for them. They were all trying to move into like either their first house or upgrade from a condo to a house. And I was dealing with these five different families at one time. And it was great because I felt like I was part of their planning process and I saw, you know, they're like, oh, we can do the baby room here and stuff like that. And then when their babies were born, I visited all of them and I, you know, saw the room that they envisioned, you know, uh, brought to fruition. And I just felt, and I, I went to a baby shower for one of them. I went to a housewarming for another, a birthday party for another. I just felt like I was a, a part of their family mm-hmm. and that really made me feel really good and really excited. And like I was, yeah, you're working with a family on a very important step in their life and helping them open a new chapter. And I really liked that. Yeah, you're, you're obviously having a major impact on how future years will mm-hmm. uh, evolve. When you're working with, say, first-time buyers like that, how is it different or is there a different approach than when it's you know an investor where the investor is more concerned about the dollar and cents of a deal and what the return is? Yeah, I would say there's definitely a difference when we're working with say a first time home buyer, a lot more of the experience can be educational in terms of the transaction itself, whereas investors are a little more versed in that portion. And a lot of it's about helping, an investor kind of knows what they want when they come to the table. We do sometimes need to coach them to a degree, but first time home buyers can quite often come and they don't have a full understanding of what they want or what they need because this is the first time they've faced this kind of purchase decision in their life. So it usually starts out with like, hey, let's just take a look at the market and see what's out there and sort of see what's available for them. Whereas with investors, it can actually start with sort of, we start out a lot more on paper with this is what we're looking for. This is the kind of numbers that we need. This is what we're able to put into the deal or how much work we're willing to do. There's a lot more of an emotional, relational element with the first time home buyers and then probably more of an analytical element to the investors. 
Right. Okay. And and home buyers, a per, like a personal home buyer, they you know will look more into what fits their lifestyle, like what kind of backyard it has, what kind of proximity to their kid's school or the commute to work. Whereas an investor doesn't really, it doesn't affect their commute to work at all. It doesn't. That's not a part of the equation. They look more at will this be appealing to this group of people that I'm planning on renting to. But there's not a lot of personal components that they consider in there. Right. They're not going to get hung up on you know the color of the siding or what mm-hmm. the or what if, the if there's room for their garden and right. stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Tell me about the most frustrating day that you've had in your real estate careers. I would say one of the most frustrating days that I've had was I had a deal that was close to closing and possession was, it was a Friday, possession was supposed to be on Monday and the lawyers for some reason seemed to take a really sort of hard-headed approach to one another and they just kind of came out of the gates with an aggressive approach just on negotiating a basic holdback for a deck. and. They came out so hard that within the first half hour of them communicating, they started to unravel the deal and were trying to figure out ways in which each of their clients could back out from the deal. Mm -hmm. So that's probably one of the most frustrating circumstances when you as an agent have taken someone home after home and you find them exactly what they want. And then all of a sudden you pass it down the line and it starts to unravel in front of your eyes. And this was two days before closing. This was two days before closing. Well, this was on the Friday and then possession was to be on the Monday. So then I have a client who's very stressed, doesn't know what is going to happen Monday morning. She's going to have two days of her weekend where she's going to be basically biting her nails, not knowing what to expect. Should I cancel the moving truck? Should I pack or not? Should I pack or not? Or am I, you know, are we going out shopping again? And so eventually what had to happen was the two realtors got back involved. We reopened up the negotiation. We were able to at least verbally solve it on the Friday. And then I got locked up and everything went through as planned on Monday. But that was very frustrating when you're sort of delicately handling a deal forward and then it just starts to unravel in front of your eyes. That was that was quite a challenging time. Wow. Everyone must have been on pins and needles for that one. Absolutely everyone. Yeah, everyone involved. Gotcha. Well, I'm glad that one came to a good conclusion. If you were to look at your last 10 deals, whether it was listing or working with buyers, are you seeing any trends developing in Edmonton? Oh, I personally am. In terms of buyers, I have quite a few, especially first-time home buyers. I think they're feeling a little bit of uncertainty now. And so because of that, when people feel uncertainty, they like to move towards certainty. And so some of them have decided, like, maybe I'll stay home a little longer with my parents and save up a bit more money. They're just afraid of where the market's going. And some of them are afraid to pull that trigger. Or if they're shopping now, they don't feel the same urgency. So they might take longer to shop. If, you know, a few years ago, even they had to decide a little more quickly. But now they might be like, well, I'd like to take the weekend to think about it. And they do have the option of that time. That being said, someone could still come and another buyer could come and be more decisive and swipe it out from underneath them. But they're willing to take that risk. So those clients who are becoming a little more hesitant, what do you say to them when they're saying, oh, Elizabeth, you know, I'm not sure what to do here? Well, it depends on the property type. Because there are still neighborhoods where things are moving quite quickly. You know, I'm not a high pressure realtor, but I do try to warn them of the implications of waiting too long on certain, you know, property types that I do think will move quickly. And I've had it where I've told them, you know, I don't think this is going to last. And then it didn't. But at the end of the day, it's really their prerogative. Right. What I'm seeing dealing with various realtors and clients and whatnot, from my perspective as a mortgage broker, is that even though this is supposedly a buyer's market, 
there is an amazing number of multiple offers out there. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Do, We're a part of those quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, there's still buyers out there. So if a property is priced well, and if it's in a desirable neighborhood, if it's a desirable type of property, there's still going to be multiple parties that want to jump in on it. There's going to be properties that sit out there for 100 plus days because maybe they're not priced appropriately. But even in the city of Edmonton right now, we're in a slower market. But if the numbers are off by 10%, that means there's still 90% of the same buyers, same amount of buyers that were out there in previous years are still shopping. So there's still a lot of people buying real estate in Edmonton. And when something's priced right, they're going to jump on it. Is there property classes or types that tend to be moving faster? Absolutely. I know we're a little bit biased because we specialize in suited houses, but if a suited house in a desirable neighborhood pops up and it's priced well, then definitely there's going to be a lot of eyes on that. And in the good neighborhoods, you actually find investors but then also home buyers who see this as, you know, this is an opportunity for me to get into the neighborhood I like, and I'm going to have this income coming from a suite downstairs that's going to help me to still have a lifestyle while affording the home. So there's a lot of people that really fit that demographic that desires that type of property. Okay. And when you say good neighborhoods, what sort of neighborhoods? Give me a few examples. Well, centrally located neighborhoods, or even if we talk about our last few properties we try to purchase or last two times we try to purchase, we were in multiple offer situations ourselves. Okay. One was in Forest Heights, I think, and then a neighborhood like, where were you? King Edward Park was the other neighborhood, but anything around the university is usually snapped up pretty quickly. Anything around the Bonnie Dune area, the White Ave area, those are all neighborhoods that get snapped up really quickly. And they also have a lot of homes that are appropriate for suiting, meaning they're designed in such a way where it's easy to add a suite. So those are neighborhoods that people want to live in. You can also easily find renters in them as well. So low vacancy. They're really desirable. You know, high walk scores, stuff like that. Okay. So those neighborhoods are all on the south side. Mm -hmm. Is there anything on the north side near downtown or Nate or... Grant McEwen, that you're seeing that sort of demand as well? Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're going west of downtown. So a neighborhood like Westmount, Inglewood is starting to become more popular. And I think over time, we're going to see the neighborhoods just north of downtown, such as Queen Mary Park. Those neighborhoods are going to increase in popularity. And probably once the arena project is done, then I'm sure, you know, 360 degrees around downtown is going to become desirable real estate. Right. Okay. Elizabeth, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned that you and Simon had personally been in multiple offers as buyers. Obviously, you end up with clients who find themselves in multiple situations or multiple offers on the buying side of things. How do you approach that type of a situation or what sort of advice do you give? Okay. I was in this situation recently with a client. They saw this house and it was their first day shopping. They did like it and they want to put an offer on, but they found out another person was going to. And so they wanted to just stick to the number that they had in their mind. It was a little bit less than list price. I explained to them the implications of doing that and the fact that we don't know what the other people are going to offer. They said that they were putting as much money as they were comfortable and were okay with losing the house. In the end, they lost the house. And then they decided that they actually said, now we're actually really disappointed. We didn't realize how much we liked the house until we lost it. And now we're going to compare every house to that house. And I was like, oh no, that's not good. But then the realtor, the selling realtor called us about a week later and said the deal had actually fallen through. And then they were in a multiple offer situation again. 
with all the other people that had, you know, put offers in the first round. And this time they were much more willing to increase the amount. And I said to them, if you win at this amount, will you feel like you overpaid? And they said, this is the maximum amount that we're willing to pay without feeling that we overpaid. Does that make sense? So I usually ask people, if you don't get it, will you regret not having gone higher? And if they say no, then you know they've reached the amount that they're willing to pay. If they say yes, then you know that maybe they should put a little more. And then you ask them, if you get it at this amount, will you feel that you overpaid? If they say no, then you know that they've reached the right amount. If they say yes, then maybe they are paying too much. So it's kind of an emotional thing as well. It's kind of a gamble because you really don't know what the other parties are putting their offers in at. So it's kind of complicated, but I guess partially it's how badly they want the house. I find with personal residences, but with investment properties, it's actually about the numbers. And there comes a point where it doesn't become as financially favorable anymore. And if it's not going to be as good in the cash flow department, then it's really not worth it. Yeah. It's far more logical and far less emotional. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I remember the first rental property I ever bought. This was in August of 2005 and it was listed for $100,000. And I ended up in a multiple offer situation. I didn't really know anything about buying rental properties, et cetera. And I paid $3,000 over list. And I was like, oh, man, I don't feel like, you know, I should be paying that. But OK, here we go. Well, fast forward two years later and it was 2007 and that mm-hmm. property had <laughs> doubled in value. Not mm-hmm. that I think properties will double in value anytime soon. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it was one of those situations where you got to stick your neck out a little bit sometimes because mm-hmm. you never know where you end up. Okay, so we talked about what it's like to be the agent on the buying side of a multiple offer situation. Simon, tell us what it's like when you are the listing agent and you know you've got at least two offers coming in on your client's home. What do you do? How does that work? If I've got a hot property listed and I know that it's going to draw a lot of people in, it's best to, even though you're excited when you receive that first offer, if you're still getting a lot of traffic through that property, you need to make sure you have the patience to sit back and wait and let it play out to make sure that you flush out any other potential offers out there. Because that way, the more offers you get, the greater potential you have to get the highest price for that property. Now, does the highest price always win the day? Not necessarily. And this is sort of a note to people who are on the buying side as well. There's other elements that might be very important to the person selling the property. And that could be possession date. It could be maybe they need a sense of security from a larger deposit. I was in a situation where my client offered more money than the person who eventually got the house. And I'm friends with that agent. So I asked them, I was like, how did you get it for so low? And they said they had zero conditions. And so the person, they valued just the peace of mind of having it done with than having to go through the due diligence period and the condition period. And so they knew if I just sign right here, this house is sold. It was worth more than the money to them. Under what condition would you tell a client that it was okay to write an unconditional offer? I would never tell my client to write an unconditional offer. Like I said, at the end of the day, it's the client's decision. I would never recommend that. To me personally, no property is worth it. I'm working on a deal today where the client for unknown reasons wrote an unconditional offer. The client's strong, but no matter what, the property still is part of the deal and the lender looks at it. And now we're asked to do an appraisal on this property. Mm -hmm. If the value comes in, say, $10,000 lower, now the client's stuck. Mm -hmm. So what's your take on realtors or, you know, your peers 
who, you know, don't necessarily give guidance to clients to just have that financing clause in there for no other reason than to act as an escape clause. I just feel like nothing's a sure thing. I mean, there are certain properties where there's a Schedule A attached, right? And they actually say all offers must be unconditional. And I explained that to my clients. And I don't tell people to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. And I just would never do it. So maybe I, I don't know, maybe I'm not telling them the right thing, but I just personally think it's too big of a risk. Yeah. There are some specific circumstances where it does make sense. If you are an all cash buyer, mm-hmm. you're not concerned with the financing. And if you are going to demolish the property or if you're experienced in construction and you know that you are going to tear that house apart and basically be rebuilding it anyways, then there can be advantage to go in with an unconditional offer, knowing that you're going to do all the work anyways, and you can get a lower price for the property. But only if those specific circumstances are in place, does it make sense? That's true. Anything outside of that for home buyers or even for casual investors or for investors who don't have construction experience or aren't working with all cash, then definitely conditions are a must. Yeah, for sure. I would agree with that. So that leads us into our last question here, which is, okay, so talking about, you know, we were talking a little bit about best practices for realtors. And that leads into the question of, you know, hypothetically speaking, if you were helping a friend or relative who was moving across the country and you couldn't be their agent, how would you prepare them in terms of what to look for in a good quality agent that'll look after them? Well, I think part of what your question is, is already in what you said. I want to make sure that person is going to look after them. If I myself can't be their agent, I I want to make sure they're going to be with someone who is putting their needs first. Sometimes there could be transactional agents. They just care about getting the deal done. I want to make sure that this person isn't like that, that they're more relational and just want to make sure that they find the best product for my friend or family member, someone who's listening to their needs. You have to pay attention, like while you're shopping, notice what they like and suggest the appropriate property types to them. Yeah, just someone who's listening to them, available, punctual, and like I said, puts their needs first. And to add to that, I also say that it's important to have someone who's a good negotiator because at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to is a negotiation to get the deal done and to get the house that this particular client wants. And when people are looking for a good negotiator, sometimes people like to say, oh, I want the most aggressive person or the boldest person. And while those can be positive attributes, true negotiation is about drawing the emotion out of the deal and basically trying to get both sides to find an amicable decision. Because at the end of the day, it's two separate parties. They have their own sets of wants and no one's going to come in and just bulldoze the other person over. Like no one ever said, oh, I wanted to sell my house for this much, but the guy was so aggressive that I just sold it for a lower price. That's not how the game works. So it's important to find someone who will draw the emotion out of the experience, who's going to stay calm. And like Oliva said, someone who's relational, because that also helps out in negotiations, because you want to find out where the give and take within the negotiation is going to be. And that takes a relational kind of person to draw that out. So very important. That, that's a have. really good point. Because I have been in situations where, you know, the other realtor pushed so hard that my client, you know, they were so turned off that they started making things difficult. Or if I had a client that pushed too hard and then, you know, you come into the house and maybe they left it dirty or stuff like that. I've also had deals where we come in and we were cooperative or they're cooperative and they leave a flat screen TV or, you know, the place is impeccable or they've done a renovation for them, you know, to the highest of standards. And so, you know, it does pay to sometimes work together as well. 
Yeah. Good real estate karma, hey? It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Okay. Simon or Elizabeth or both of you, what is the best real estate advice you've ever received, either as an agent or as clients before you got into real estate as agents? So the best advice I received was shortly after I became a real estate agent. And this advice came from an older and wiser real estate agent that I happened to have a quick conversation with. And he said, the difference with real estate as an agent is not the type of industry where the big eats the small, which is sort of the industry I came from. I came from more of a corporate position. He said, it's the fast eats the slow. And in order to get to the table first, find the deal first, you gotta be quick, but more importantly, in order to help your clients feel secure and feel that they're being looked after and manage your stress levels, you need to be a very responsive person. And so being able to respond quickly, being able to find information quickly, being able to answer questions quickly is very critical to being successful as a real estate agent. That's really interesting. I had never heard that, that you know, the fast eats the slow, but it really is true, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have two. They're both really quick. I was listening to a podcast before I became an agent, actually. And it's a podcast where these real estate agents are talking. And he was actually talking about how you never have to worry about the money. Just always do the right thing for the client and the money will come. I thought that was really good because sometimes you can worry about transactions or worry about things coming together. And sometimes the right thing to do is have your client walk away from the transaction or tell them it's not the right time to sell their house. And that means you get nothing. Mm-hmm. in the short term. But being an agent that people trust, you know, they will come back to you or they will refer you to other friends or when it is time for them to sell, they will come back to you. So just do the right thing and the money will come. And then the last one is really simple is just be yourself. Sometimes it's really hard or you wonder if I should be more like this or more like this agent or more like that agent. At the end of the day, you can just be the person you are and people are going to be attracted to you. That's great. And if they want to go with someone else, that's their right but just be yourself. That's all you can do. Right. Okay. That's really good advice. Any other last thoughts or comments? I would just reiterate what Elizabeth said about being yourself because that's how you find relationships that are going to work with clients, with other people in the industry, in the real estate industry, such as yourself, Jason. If we're able to be ourselves and then form the right relationship from that point forward, then you sort of got the right foundation. So I think that was a great point by Elizabeth. That's critical. Yeah. I mean, I've always taken the opinion that, yeah, it's great to be paid today, but the true value of your job and your profession and business is the recurring and referral business. There's far, far greater value in there. So Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Simon and Elizabeth, thanks a lot for joining us on the show. I hope you guys continue to rock the year and have an awesome finish to the second half of 2016. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jason. It was a lot of fun. 